Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. One of the reasons I began the Pilgrim Faith Podcast is because I wanted to cultivate conversations about difficult subjects, whether theological or cultural, on the premise that the subjects themselves are, in fact, difficult, uh, that we're all a bit confused sometimes, and that the sanctified imagination has a role to play in helping us grow in wisdom and maturity. But this is a difficult task, and there are some dangers in it. it is, it's especially important for those who want to come to a more conscious self-possession of their faith to have good guides, like, like C.S. Lewis, for instance, to exemplify what this looks like. With exceptions that could be counted on a single hand, I'm not sure I've ever found myself so manifestly in the presence of such a guide as when I'm reading Herman Bovink. I still recall my first encounter with Bovink in the library stacks at the Catholic University of America. The first volume of his dogmatics had recently been published, and there I was, a not quite theologically mature undergraduate student, trying to gain a map of the world from within my own Reformed tradition. And, and all it took was the table of contents to persuade me that Bovink was the guide I needed. A few years later, I went to seminary at RTS in Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and, and through the five, six systematics courses I took there, the main text was always Bobbing. This gave me the opportunity to work through the vast majority of his dogmatics, and I, and I very much doubt that anything has so shaped my vision of the Christian faith as encountering Bobbing there. Uh, I never got over the breadth of his sources, his kindness to his theological enemies, his charity, all mixed with extreme theological precision, proportionate judgment, incontestable orthodoxy, and intellectual creativity. And that was just the beginning. Since then, I've become persuaded that, that Bob Inc. was even more than this, with, with extreme relevance to issues that are still with us today. In particular, I think, I think Bob Inc. is perhaps one of our best guides uh, for helping us to see what a faithful Christian navigation of modernity looks like. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Of course, as a, as, a lay, as a lay reader of Bavink, uh, I'm dependent upon the scholarship of others. Three persons in particular have been enormously helpful to me. One is James Eglinton, who I'm sure we'll have occasion to mention today. Uh, the other two are his students, Corey Brock and uh, Nathaniel Gray Sutanto, uh, both of whom have recently graduated with a PhD at the University of Edinburgh under Eglinton. Uh, Dr. Brock is currently an assistant pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. He also teaches courses in theology and philosophy at Bellhaven College. He is the author of a wonderful book, Orthodox Yet Modern, Herman Bovink's Use of Frederick Schleiermacher, which is going to be released with Lexham Press in just a few months' time. Dr. Sutanto is joining us uh, a perfect 12 hours ahead in Jakarta, Indonesia, where he is currently a pastor. Uh, however, Lord willing, in just a few months, Gray, as he, as he goes by, will be joining the faculty of my alma mater, Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., as a new assistant professor of theology. Uh, this is both a joyous and a bittersweet event for me. The, the former professor of theology there, Dr. Howard Griffith, was my own systematic theology professor who introduced me to Bovink, actually, and had a profound impact on my life. The, RT, the RTS community was quite grieved when he passed away last year, but in God's mercy, I cannot imagine a more fitting replacement than Gray. Uh, I am confident that a generation of seminary students will be enormously blessed by his ministry there, 
uh, as I and so many others were by Dr. Griffiths. Gray's book, God and Knowledge, another excellent book, God and Knowledge, Herman Bovink's Theological Epistemology, was just released a few months ago with TNT Clark. Uh, in addition to their individual books, Corey and Gray have edited the recent annotated edition of Bob Inc.'s Philosophy of Revelation. And as if that weren't enough, they've also, along with Jabe Zegleton, edited and translated the recent edition of Bob Inc.'s Christian Worldview. Uh, guys, I'm, I'm very grateful that you're with me here today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and I think uh, before we started, uh, 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 Gray mentioned that there's another book you both are working on. Uh, can one of you tell us what that book is, what that book is, so we can all get excited and, you know, uh, put something on our Christmas list before it comes due? Hmm. Yeah, uh, Corey and I were working on a book that basically introduced this neo-Calvinism. I think what we see on studies on neo-Calvinism today or what goes forth for neo-Calvinism today and both its allies and its foes um, are, are, are multiple conflicting trajectories, perhaps. I mean, you see neo-Calvinism as, as being identified with a kind of reformational philosophy, the line of Doeuvert, for example, or you see neo-Calvinism as being referred to to the works of James K. Smith or even neo-Calvinism in reference to um, a, a, a kind of public theology, right? Uh, primarily as a public theology. So it's not really clear what exactly the term refers to. What is neo-Calvinism specifically? Um, those lines are perhaps really are, are fruitful ways of thinking about it. But we try, we try to just get at the, the first generation neo-Calvinists. We try to get back to the sources, take a look at Kuiper and Bobby within their own context, and take a look at their own specific theological contributions. And lots of the introductions out there on neo-Calvinism uh, introduce neo-Calvinism as precisely as a political philosophy or as a philosophy of life or as a public theology, uh, but not actually give us uh, an introduction to neo-Calvinism as a dogmatic contribution, as a theological contribution. In other words, what were Bavink and Kuiper trying to do in their theological work what did they see themselves as doing? Uh, what did they see themselves as doing something different from reform tradition? How do they see themselves as in continuity with the reform tradition? And perhaps also give signals of how it is that their work was received in the way that they were um, in, the, in the 20th century and 21st century and beyond. Hmm. So that's what we're trying to do. Um, it's, it's in the works, it's coming. No, oh, that sounds really fun. Do you have a sense of when it'll be published? I, I mean, of course, these dates are always malleable and can be shoved forward quite a bit, but so I won't hold you to it. Yeah. Corey? Probably late 2021, I think, would be uh, the earliest. So. Okay. Okay, so Christmas next year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Well, what I'm what I'm hoping we can do through the through the questions I have for you guys is to help others appreciate the enormity of, of Bob Inc.'s theological achievement and perhaps make the case that the Bob Inc. revival in English is not old news but ought to be the beginning of a long-term engagement in the English-speaking theology world. Uh, my own hunch is that we're just beginning to come to grips with his achievement. So, so let's start. Um, first question I'm throwing out to you guys is. You know, the, the, the recent translation of Bob Inc. into English has been very exciting. Uh, one of the things that has brought, however, into the English-speaking world is a debate about how to interpret Bob Inc. Uh, one of those debates concerns the so-called sort of two Bob Inc.'s school. 
can you briefly describe what this debate is and what the crucial developments in the in that debate have been in the last decade or so? Sure. Um, it actually started started long before um, the recent mentions of it in English about a decade or so ago. Uh, the first person to mention two bovinks was a Dutch uh, writer named Jan Feinhoff. Uh, I believe it was in the early 60s when he first mentioned two bovinks. And since then, probably the most significant English-speaking uh, writer to, to go down that line has been Malcolm Yarnell, who referred to bovink um, as a schizophrenic thinker, a schizophrenic theologian. Um, and you can even see it in, in traces, I think, even in more recently in Arvin Voss's articles on Bavink's epistemology, where he talks about Bavink's com commitments to what we might call a reformed Thomism today, while at the same time being upset with Bavink for being overly Kantian, uh, as he puts it. Um, so basically, the narrative is this. On the one hand, Bavink was the child of a conservative Calvinist Orthodox household, uh, Dutch pietism, pervading, hardworking, Sabbath-keeping, uh, work-rest lifestyle, all the good things that we've borrowed from Puritanism and, and learned from, and very committed, of course, to Reformed scholastic theology, uh, to confessionalism, to the, the, the three forms of unity. And all of that is, is very true to a large degree, but as we'll see in, in James Eglinton's new biography, a very nuanced uh, family life from the previous picture. On the flip side, you have a Bavink who has been accused quite often for being uh, post-Kantian in the sense of a, a scholar who is truly post-Kant, uh, overly subjectivist, too wed to current philosophical musings, uh, too interested in Kant, Schleiermacher, Hegel, um, while while critical of enlightenment and French revolution, uh, um, at the same time also imbibed a political spirit that was sometimes seen to be revolutionary. And if I could just sum it up, a lot of times it's been put like this, that in Bavink's early career, you had a, a young man who was orthodox, but struggling with uh, modernity. And in his latter career, it's been said that he put away a lot of the the reform. He put away his reform dogmatics, finished it, and turned in his latter career more exclusively towards philosophy, the sciences, and the arts. Uh, in a way, turning away from the former commitments he had had to his confessional theology. And so, people have at times tried to go through his work and say, "Here's Bavink, the modernist. Here's Bavink, the." Pietist, the scholastic, and, and almost done a, you know, as, as Brian Madsen's called it, a, a Velhausian approach uh, to you know, <laughs> a JEPD sort of a, a dichotomizing of his of Bavings on text. Um, so, you know, we've treated that both of us in publications and, and others have as well. But Gray, I don't know if there's something you might want to add to that. I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, um, the, the past dichotomy had always been Bavink, the good old reformed uh, confessionalist versus Bavink, the modernist. And I think what we're trying to do now is say there's only one Bavink that's been established by Madsen's and Eglinton's work. Um, Madsen's book, Restored to Our Destiny, and James Eglinton's Trinity and Organism. And um, 
the kind of one bombing that we have now, it's not to choose one side between the two bombing pieces, only the modern bombing actually exists or only the reformed confessionalists only exists, but rather a orthodox yet modern to use Corey's uh, title there, an orthodox yet modern bombing um, that even though he stands upon a strong retrieval of his reform commitments and, um, and 17th century orthodoxy, he also at the same time uh, um, presents that in a way that is distinctively modern in the way that he treats the person, in the way that he treats uh, consciousness, religion, humanity, um, the sciences. It's, it's a very modern uh, um, um, conception while at the same time never leaving his traditional reform roots. So instead of pitting one against the other, we want to say, hey, it's both. Um, of course, standing on orthodoxy, but at the same time presenting it in a modern way. Yeah, and that, that kind of leads naturally then into the to the second question I had, which is for you know for those who reject the you know for me it was you know reading Eglinton of course, who I think uh, uh, his Trinity and Organism was just very helpful in sort of sort of shoving against this narrative. I think right before that I had read Dewitt's. I think his name is DeWitt, but uh, the On the Way to the Living God, the cathartic reading, who I think has a very Tuboffing's reading, and Anglinton mm -hmm. was a, a really wonderful corrective. Um, but for those who, who reject the Tuboffing hypothesis, it is, it's nevertheless interesting that the remaining singular Bovink isn't always the same character. You know, what's the one Bovink that's left over? And I'm betting, for instance, if one were to compare Ron Gleason's recent biography of Bovink with, with James Eglinton's forthcoming one, um, uh, well, well, both are kind of one Bovink readings of Bovink. My guess is nevertheless that you get a different Bovink from <laughs> in each of those versions of a one Bovink. For some, Bovink is a, is a kind of very clever and smart reformed orthodox theologian who is just perhaps a sort of 19th century reformed scholastic. Uh, but a lot of the work you two have done seems to want to show us where there are distinctively modern aspects of, of Bovink's work. So can you, can you talk about that? What's the one Bovink that we get left over? Yeah, I can start. Um, well, it might it might be worth worth mentioning that Ron Gleason's biography um, is a, in a, is an amalgamation mostly of uh, Brema and Hep, two Dutch writers um, that are older biographers in the earlier twentieth century. Uh, and you know, if it, as for those who've read it, um, it's a tale told often to highlight or perhaps um, speak to the liberal conservative dichotomy in the United States. And so Gleason uh, taps into Bovink's narrative to, to speak in some ways to about lessons in the U.S. and the, in the present day. And, you know, <clears throat> James, by going back to the sources, has been able to, to see um, a bigger story, a slightly different story. Um, in in the original sources and everybody will look forward to, to reading that when it comes out but I, I think one of the ways gray and i both have come to to see the epitome of bovink's uh the, the bovink's modernity expressed is in how we've tried to formulate his understanding of the theological task um might be a, a helpful place to, to talk about. Uh, Bavink talks in his original introduction to the Reform Dogmatics that, that was not published along with the Reform Dogmatics in English about the theological task itself. And he says that the, the theological task for, uh, for himself, for a person who is in the Reform tradition, is to be Catholic 
and reformed. And uh, that understanding of Catholic uh, goes beyond just the, the baseline theological meaning of Catholic, the term uh, begetting, you know, or, or causing us to think of the universality of the church and things like this, but it actually has um, a, a, an ethic to it. And that ethic for Bavink is that, is the ethic of reformation, which is that we are to look for the truth wherever it is to be found. Catholicity begets <clears throat> constant reformation. Uh, it does not in that for Bob Inc., and he mentions this, ever overprise a particular era of thinking, mm -hmm. philosophy. Um, it, 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 uh, it, it deconstructs the idea of a golden age. Um, the task of dogmatics for Bob Inc., is to bring the truth to bear on the current moment. And so dogmatics rightfully done must interact very extensively and intensively with the philosophical milieu of the present day. Uh, that's very important for him. And you see that over and over again uh, in his dogmatic work and in his philosophical work, you know, there's a very famous quote um, that Bobbing mentions where he says that theology is not in need of a specific philosophy. Um, he says that theology is not hostile to any philosophical system on the one hand, uh, but it does not accept a priori any, any philosophical system on the other. It, he, he mentions it cannot uh, give, give authority over to Plato or Aristotle or Kant uh, on either hand. It has to, look for the truth. It needs a philosophy in general. It, it, um, it, it's the, the goal is to search for truth wherever one might find it. So that's one way I think that he's particularly modern, or at least that he, through that Catholicity as a task, allows uh, the modern to speak within his dogmatic works. Mm. Yeah, that's incredibly helpful, Corey. And you know, you see that even in his um, uh, preface to the wonderful works of God, where he's, he talks about the reason why he needed to write this particular work. Yes, it's a systematic theology written for the layman. But at the same time, he says that um, a lot of the previous works of theology just simply don't work anymore. And one of the works that he mentioned is Abrakel's Our Reasonable Service. Uh, he says that this might have worked in the past, but this is not something that could work anymore in the present. So we need a theology for our own time. These people are busy. These people are confronted with the world. These people are, are confronted with uh, many voices and competing voices that they need to wrestle with. And we need, therefore, a theology that could speak into them. Um, and so what we see in, in, in the, the works that Corey had mentioned, and also even in the foreword to the wonderful works of God, which is written for the church, is this idea that theology should be Recommunicated in every generation in a new way, in a fresh way, and that might be, in, in, in language, it might be different from how it was expressed in the past. Um, this goes in hand in hand with with some of the emphases in Abraham Kuyper as well, and it's in his work, I believe, it was a, a lecture or a sermon called "Conservatism and Orthodoxy," uh, where Kuyper makes exactly that same claim that true conservatism means uh, um, an openness to to God's work of recreating a new uh, um, a, a new form of life so his analogy for that is kind of the resurrection look christianity is not 
a religion that says that there is one body that transfers from the present state to the new estate. But Christianity says that God is doing something surprising when he resurrects the body. It's going to be radically different. And interestingly, he draws an analogy from that to our task as the church and our task as theologians. How do we uh, um, stand with the past? So there's continuity between the resurrected body and the, 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 the redeemed body or the fallen body, right? Uh, the created body. But at the same time, there's a surprising level of discontinuity as well. So the task of the theologian, he says, is to root it in the past. Of course, that's how we have to be conservatives, but at the same time, anticipate new forms of doing theology. So you see that kind of idea too in Bobby, because he wants to say, look, if, if we are the children of the 19th to 20th century, we should be grateful for that. We shouldn't be looking at our culture and say Christianity is against culture. Christianity is only against sin. So given that we're children of our time, we should be very much thankful for that. So not only in the, in, in the dogmatics, you see that I think Corey was, was citing a passage in, in RD1 towards the letter end. Um, his, his mode of doing dogmatics and his preface to, to the reform dogmatics, also the preface to the wonderful works of God, but also in his uh, uh, later lecture called um, orthodoxy and modernism. Uh, in that particular lecture, he also talked about how Christianity will always depend upon its own cultural milieu. So Christians can't pretend like they're not being influenced by the modern world for good and for ill. And we have to discern where the good is. So instead of getting this uh, uh, reactionary mode of doing theology, perhaps it says, hey, everything after uh, the Enlightenment is just simply bad. He's going to be critical of the Enlightenment, don't get this wrong. Um, and he wants to stand on the orthodoxy of the past. He wants to say, look, we are children of the 19th century. And, and so we need to preserve orthodoxy in a way that speaks to our time. And that's a very modern move. But I think if he, if he wants to preserve orthodoxy, even in the midst of that. Right, right. Mm. You know, and as I as I think about the distinctively modern elements of Bobbing's thought, I'm I'm reminded that you know many characterize modernity as sort of a turn to the subject. You know, you know medieval philosophy we used to stare you know stare at the world itself, and modern philosophy is this turn to how do we know and about the human self, etc. You know whether that is seen as a good or a bad move, you know variously interpreted, but. But to the extent that this uh, obscured previous philosophical insights, you know, many would say that this had some detrimental effect. But, but it nevertheless remains the case that a, that a closer study of man uh, does provide vantage points for understanding reality more thoroughly. Uh, in what ways do you see Bovink trying to grapple with a more reflexive understanding of the human relative to theology and the Christian life? That seems to be something just... I recall when you know in seminary when I was reading the dogmatics, I was just always impressed. And and the the um, the publication of Reformed Ethics recently has reinforced this, that Bobbink is always stopping at each moment in his loci and talking about the human soul, and in a very fine grained way. It's never an aside. It's a deeply reflected sense of like what does this look like internally, sort of on the inside of Christian experience. That's always very much impressed me. So I'm curious how you how you you know, talk about that or think about it. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, you know, for Bavink, I think uh, as much as that was a modern turn, the turn to the subject, and as much as he was uh, 
appreciative in some sense of uh, some of the things he had learned from, from idealistic philosophy, for example, about the human subject and consciousness. Uh, he also saw the turn of the subject as a return to Augustine. Um, and for him, you know, he, he mentions fairly regularly the, the beginning of Calvin's Institutes and Augustine's own turn to the inner self. And then what he really does is he filters that theological um, uh, precedence through the language and grammar of 19th century philosophy, and particularly through uh, the Romantic philosophy, German Romanticism in large measure, you know, like many in the 19th century were discussing that there are three realities that comprise existence. And the question was, can you know them or not? And that was, of course, the self, uh, which is technically invisible, you know, uh, immediate consciousness is an invisible, is a a non-empirical reality that we all experience as self-consciousness awakens. and so you have the self, you have the world and its totality, objective existence outside of me. And you have God, of course, which Kant relegated to the domain of mere thinking, not knowing. Uh, for Bavink, he realized that in some sense, at least, uh, the I- idealism in general was right, that all knowledge begins with um, the immediate self-consciousness. It begins with me. And that means that all knowledge is determined to some degree by the nature of my consciousness. Uh, and so for Bavink, the turn to the subject is an empirical turn. It's just where life begins. Uh, it's where knowledge begins. It's where all experience begins. And he was um, you know, empirically bent in his in- investigatory inductive type of manner. But for him, the the biggest thing that the philosophical turn to the subject helped him to see, I think, was actually how much he was enabled through it to expand uh, his vision of general revelation, the horizon of revelation. You know, he wanted to move beyond a mechanical view of just saying, you know, revelation is scripture. Uh, of course, revelation, scripture is revelation. But one of the things he's trying to do in his latter life is, is show how modernity and the turn to the subject, but also the, the modern sciences actually helped us see the enormity of God's revelation in his ever imminent presence all the way into the, into the farthest reaches of the cosmos through, through you know, the sciences, but also all the way beginning with the self in the deepest uh, pits in the deepest depths of immediate self-consciousness. And he was, you know, he, he would think of texts like in him, we live and move and we have our being or Psalm 71 from birth. I have depended on you, O God. And uh, in doing that, he, he saw himself taking cues from Augustine and Calvin and then making lots of use of Schleiermacher and other modern theologians and and particularly philosophers to talk about how the turn to the subject was actually uh, a turn towards the imminent presence of God where revelation is first experienced precognitive deep down in in the self. So that's at least one area. There's lots more. Yeah. 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 I I just completely agree with that. So, yeah. (laughs) In fact, the next question actually is directly to you, Corey. You know, you've written in particular about Bavink's appropriation of Schleiermacher 
who's often seen as the, in fact, often when you're kind of writing the narrative of modern theology, right, you, you, you mentioned Schleiermacher as the moment that theology is sort of infected with the turn to the subject. You know, some people write this way about Schleiermacher. Um, but can you tell us your, your, your basic argument, what your basic argument was in your book and, and how it's significant for understanding Bobbing's thought? I suppose this is like asking you to give your dissertation abstract out loud from memory. And yeah. uh, if somebody asked me that, I'd be mad, but uh, I'm asking you. <laughs> well, you know, I was um, telling my wife earlier that uh, in, in trying to rehearse some of that argument, I was, you know, I was thinking about it in my head and having an incredibly difficult time because as you both know, you know, it's been about three years since I finished writing it and you forget everything that you write right <laughs> uh, so um, I, I might be the worst person to ask about the argument i made um <laughs> now, schleiermacher of course is often called the father of modern protestant theology uh he is what many think of as modern theology in an individual but um let me say two things about that one is uh, while that's true for bovink while bovink would agree with that uh, like Charles Hodge, Bavink had a deep appreciation for Schleiermacher. Um, you know, Hodge is in his second volume of his systematics talks about how he trusts that, that Schleiermacher right now is singing praises to Jesus in heaven. And, um, you know, I think Hodge was saying that to alleviate some, you know, uh, fears, uh, not dismissing the errors Schleiermacher made. Of course, uh, Bavink, Hodge nor Bavink does that. But Bavink and Hodge, I think, both saw that Schleiermacher loved Jesus Christ to the core. Uh, I think for both of them, that came through the text fairly clearly. And I think uh, Bavink um, did his best to understand the nuances of Schleiermacher within the context. He, Bavink read a very obscure work of Schleiermacher's uh, called the dialectic that really um, is very important background material to understanding Schleiermacher's Christian faith. And Bavink shows evidence multiple times in multiple works that he understood Schleiermacher's dialectic, which really it's been middle 20th century before, before German scholars have even started to wrestle very much with how important Schleiermacher's dialectic was. So Bavink was leading the way in some sense with that. Um, but of course, uh, Schleiermacher's, let me try to be brief here. Uh, this could, this could go on too long, obviously, but uh, Schleiermacher follows Kant to a degree in that Schleiermacher uh, accepts the separation Kant developed in his epistemology between knowing and thinking, right? For Kant to know something, it requires an empirical experience and the categories of the understanding. So both self and world have to be involved. Um, that's obviously a terribly oversimplification of Kant's epistemology, but uh, the things that Kant is famous for saying you cannot know are the self, the, 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 the soul, the depths of consciousness, immediate self-consciousness, the world, uh, the totality of objects that we call the world, and, and God, of course. And Schleiermacher is coming after that and saying, okay, that means we can't do theology like we used to. How can we make theology into a domain of knowledge? And what he does is he essentially says, uh, theology now has got to be a study of the corporate consciousness 
of salvation, the corporate, the corporate consciousness of depending upon God absolutely through the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. So for Schleiermacher, theology becomes a sociological description in a way of the church's current beliefs in any given place at any given time uh, with conviction, uh, but it becomes largely sociological. Bavink reads it, Schleiermacher, that way and wholly rejects that method. Um, that 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 um, turning theology he thinks into religious studies, um, but the philosophical musing of Schleiermacher behind it, Bavink consistently appropriates and accepts. You know, Schleiermacher said, "True religion is the feeling of absolute dependence. Being in relation with God is the feeling of absolute dependence." And Feeling, it's very important. This is so important because Schleiermacher is so misunderstood by so many because they get, they, they read feeling through a, a 21st century American or, or Western English lens. And feeling is not emotion when Schleiermacher says that. What he's referring to there is a precognitive way of knowing the extra empirical. Um, we have a feeling of being in relationship with God, something we can't experience empirically, we can't see God, um, because when we have feelings of relative dependence through our experience with others, uh, we from there, that unveils for us the, the fact that we must be absolutely dependent on some absolute if we are relatively dependent on all sorts of relatives. Uh, and for, Bob, for, for Schleiermacher, that unveiled was proof of the, the feeling of absolute dependence um, that all human beings know a holy other that they depend upon, that they awaken to that in consciousness. And then for Christians, associate that with redemption in Jesus Christ. Uh, Bavink uh, appreciated um, this, this philosophical reflection on the feeling of absolute dependence in relation to relative dependence. Uh, and so much so that he, he came to adopt it in his dogmatics and his philosophical work, especially his work on religion. Uh, Bavink often uses this language of Schleiermacher in the German directly in his Dutch text. And that's been largely veiled in the English translations because um, they didn't include the fact that that particular piece might have been in German, might have been in Schleiermacher's German, um, which is an important thing to be able to see. Um, and so uh, this, this feeling of the unity of self, of relative dependence on the world and absolute dependence on an absolute God, uh, Bavink says that Schleiermacher was right about that, but what Bobby wants to do with it, it says, we all have that, what he calls pietas, piety after, pietas, piety after Calvin, is because of God's revelation of himself in the human consciousness. Basically, he's trying to, to Bobby is basically using Schleiermacher's philosophy to describe general revelation first experienced in the self. That's really... Um, the sum total, I think, of what he's doing with it. So, yeah, that's really fascinating. And, and you know, one way in which your book really struck me is that that, that Bavink could be read as a sort of philosopher of religion in various moments. Uh, you know, moreover, he's 
he's writing during the rise of, of modern religious studies. You know, when you read the footnotes and you read, you know, kind of histories of religious studies and you read the footnotes, you realize he's reading all of this. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if, if you or, or Greg could talk about Bavinck's relationship to religion in general. One of the one of the things that's striking about the Reformed dogmatics is that Bavinck is constantly trying to show how Christianity fulfills other religions. So, you know, when you read a lot of dogmatic treatises or a lot of reformed dogmatics or just systematic theologies in general, there's, there's so much sort of contrastive language and that's legitimate. I mean, like how is Christianity different from Islam and Hinduism and all this sort of thing. And Bobbing does some of that as well, but he's also, he, he adds, it's that addition that's so interesting that he's trying to show how Christianity actually fulfills other religions. Um, and he's, he's clearly read voraciously in them, he, but he writes, it seems to me, with an eye. There's something about his writing that strikes me as though he's writing with an eye on other religious practitioners. Uh, so, is it, you know, is there a sense in which Bob Inc. is a sort of proto, you know, religious ecumenist, you know, you know that not, not in the sense that we use the term today, but someone who sees, you know, he's writing in the late 19th, early 20th century, someone who sees the trend towards a more globalized world and has a kind of early and very prescient eye on the rhetorical need of Christians to posture our faith relative to other faiths in a way that's fair in its description of them, but as well as, but also attractive, you know, in a sense, in its content towards them. So I'm wondering if you can, you know, talk about that. Is that, would that be fair to read out of Bavink and what he's doing with other religions? Yeah, so that's a great question, Joe, and um, it's worth to think about. I, I think that uh, this, the study of Bobbing and other religions is still really underexplored, and I think a lot of the work that Corey and I are doing may have strong implications for that. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and take some uh, hopefully educated conjectures here on what I think Bobbing is trying to do. Um, so I think, I think that, for example, you know, Corey had already mentioned the precognitive dimension of general revelation and the fact that general revelation is way more expansive than simply God revealing himself in the cosmos. God also reveals himself in the inner depths of self-consciousness. And I think that the moment you do that, you, you therefore have this, this, this distinction between um, your feeling of being dependent upon God on the one hand and how you articulate that feeling in, in, in how you respond to that feeling, right? So, so that when you begin to, to use a Kuyperian word, systematize what you know in your heart, right? When you try to rationalize or reason out what you know pre-rationatively, pre, pre, pre um, you, you begin to articulate uh, a response to what your heart intuitively knows so that we can therefore argue that other religions are simply trying to construct a fallen response to what you know deep within, if that could be uh, articulated that way. And, and the product of that, I think, would, would ultimately be less than ideal forms of religion. So here's another thing that struck me about what Bobbing says about Christianity is that Christianity, yes, it's a, it's a religion that fulfills other religions and it's a religion that comes to its own precisely because it reaffirms, reinvigorates and, and confirms that you are absolutely dependent upon God, not just as a creature, but him also as your redeemer. But this feeling of absolute dependence doesn't negate freedom 
but actually activates freedom. Um, whereas other religions might say that you are absolutely dependent upon God, um, the, the, the kind of human person that's being formed out of that realization of dependence is not freedom, but just total subdued submission, if you could put it that way, kind of a, a passive docility before God, where God simply forms you and your will and your personality and your freedom are not in any way creative. But Bavink, for example, in his, in his earlier work, The Kingdom of God, The Highest Good, he talks about the free personality that is activated by the spirit, such that, yes, we're dependent upon the spirit. The spirit is forming you into a better personality. The spirit is connecting you to the kingdom of God and the word of God confronts you. But this word doesn't create a slave out of you, so to speak, but rather makes you more free. And in one line of the dogmatics, I forget where exactly he says that Christianity com combines the freedom of, of Kant with the dependence of Schleiermacher. So mm. Kant, you know, he talks about how the enlightened person is a free person. He thinks for himself, he's a free personality. But Schleiermacher says, no, the, the, the person is, is dependence. You know, it's, you're, you're depending upon God. And so he says, well, Christianity offers both by way of the covenant, right? Covenant says you have to follow the covenant stipulations. But by virtue of Christ and his spirits and covenantal obedience, you're actually freed. You don't follow the law as outside of you. The law is written in your heart. So you obey out of this bodily knowledge, this, this intuitive knowledge. And so when you obey the law, it's not something that, that, that is uh, um, rendering you into a servant-like slave who's docile, but rather it's, it's causing you to be free like a child obedient to a father. That's just, you know, that's one way I think he's trying to say that Look, all the other religions are responding to this knowledge of the heart. Um, you're going to come up with less than ideal forms that pit freedom against uh, um, formation or something like that. And Christianity, however, with this idea of redemption, of grace, of covenant, allows you to secure both formation and freedom together. I think that's one way we can put it. Mm. That's fascinating. That's yeah, helpful. Um, the, 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 the reflection on absolute dependence and freedom is one where he uh, actually in relation to religion wants to correct Schleiermacher. And he says that very explicitly in philosophy of revelation as Gray mentioned uh, rightly that um, he said Schleiermacher described true religion as absolute dependence. And, and Bob Inc. says the exact same thing. He says that's correct. Yet absolute dependence includes the will. And um, he said that how can one absolutely depend as Greg was just pointing out, unless the will itself, not knowledge and desire has actually been subjected to the true God. And so he says, while uh, religion is absolute dependence, while there's a sense of absolute dependence in all religious persons, uh, it's not true until its object is true, Yahweh through Christ, and um, subjectively the will has also been included. So that's one of the ways he actually interacts with an incorrect Schleiermacher as well. But, um, you know, one of the questions that he's exploring, uh, particularly in philosophy of revelation by way of, of religion, is he's looking through all the research uh, of the 19th and early 20th century of people who have engaged in religious studies uh, in, the, in the academy, you know, um, we haven't mentioned yet, I don't think, which is com a commonly mentioned piece of context and all this. And that's the, I believe, what was it, 1876 Gray Higher Education Act. 
Um, the Higher Education Act in the Netherlands ended up failing ultimately, but it essentially turned uh, theological departments into religious study faculties, religious study faculties, studies faculties. And of course, Bavink was, was radically against that. Um, the object could no longer be God. It, could, it had to be sociology or, or whatever else uh, religious, religious studies engages in. And, um, but one thing Bavink did say that w- was profitable was the investigation in all these departments of trying to locate the essence of religion and define it, uh, the history and origin of religions and, and, and define them ultimately. And he shows in philosophy of revelation how those projects ultimately failed. And the reason that those projects failed is because he says that the origin of religion and the essence of religion, the universality uh, of religion is located squarely in revelation and in God's revelation and God's revelation of himself to the human subject in all times and places and to what he also calls human nature. It's uh, religion is just for Bavink being in relationship with God. And it's something that just is a fact of human existence mm-hmm. is ultimately how he describes it, uh, which is why these religious studies uh, projects of discovering the origin or the essence have, have largely failed for him because they haven't looked at theology. They haven't looked at, at God, the fact of revelation. Um, and so, you know, that you mentioned, uh, Joe, at the beginning, you mentioned C.S. Lewis and um, uh, all this discussion. And I think Bavink even sort of men- mentions this here and there on occasion, but I'm, I'm leading a, a book club right now on Lewis's best novel, uh, Tell We Have Faces. And, mm-hmm. um, and uh, one of the things a lot of the people have mentioned in that book club is uh, how much they recognize the Old Testament in Lewis's descriptions of the temple texts in Till We Have Faces. You know, the many will have read it, many will have not read it, but um, the, the smell of holiness when, when sacrifices are offered and uh, a, a clear distinction in, in compartmental, sacrificial compartmental systems, holy of holies, common spaces, and all of these things. And, you know, Lewis is exploring and all that. Uh, I think partly the question, why is this so universal? You know, why is, uh, why is the temple practice and the sacrificial practices and the same religious practices we see throughout the ancient religions, which Bavink calls pan-Babylonian religion, um, so, so consistent. And, and Bavink is saying in his latter career, especially revelation, God's revelation of himself is the answer sin makes that makes religions sick christ makes them healthy that's one way he talks about it uh certainly there can be false and true but he likes to say sick or healthy um and how somebody's receiving the revelation of god whether that's through christ or not you know when he says revelation there all religion is rooted in revelation uh, I'm hearing not just special revelation for Bavink, that it's, it's, it's no, no. general revelation as well, particularly in the subject. Do that be, Particularly is, general, yes, yes. Yeah. So it's, it's a very anti-Bardian, or well, in a sense it agrees with Bard to a degree, but um, he wants to, to expand the scope of the power of general revelation uh, to the immensity down to, to the self into the, the ends of the cosmos, and so in that way is radically anti-Bart's future project um, in a lot of, in a, in a, in a significant way, I think. 
That's really helpful. That's great. Well, part of Bob Inc.'s capacity to appreciate the other, of course, is a is a sort of one one might call it an early theory of diversity. Um, his organic motif is constantly trying to account for human diversity or diversity, not just of humans, but of all, all sorts of diversity. Um, uh, Gray, in your book on epistemology, you talk about this motif quite a bit. Can you, can you summarize what Bob Inc. is doing with that organic motif and how that shaped his epistemology? Yeah, that's a great question. Now I'm doing the same thing that I did to Corey, which is summarize your dissertation and, you know, a minute. Yeah. <laughs> that's a massive question. Um, as as uh, you know, you know, the organic motif is basically Bob Inc.'s way of talking about all of God's creation um, because God is a triune God. He's, of course, a simple God. He's without parts, but at the same time, he, is, um, uh, he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's an absolute unity and diversity within God. Um, God's creation also would reflect uh, that pattern of unity and diversity, not in a, in a replication of three-in-oneness, of course, that's unique to God, and not in a peripheric way or in a simple way like it is in God, but creation will be patterned after and will reflect types of unities and diversities. So he argues that, for example, um, humanity is a unity and diversity, precisely because we're made in the image of God. We are the, the, the highest form of God's creation. Um, we are not just individuals. We are all united together under a federal head, whether it is in Adam or in Christ. There's a unity by way of our federal headship in Adam. Uh, but there's also, there's also a diversity. We are all still different personalities and different individuals, but we're all connected together by way of that ethical bond in Adam. And we see analogies of that. You know, when a member of the family sins, the whole family feels it. When a president makes decisions, the whole nation uh, feels its consequences. When uh, We don't um, know anything about that. Uh, yeah, not at all. <laughs> so you see these like... Uh, um, layers of unities and diversities in human society and in human nature. And he argues that humanity is a single organism. And, and, and he, he therefore tries to describe um, facets of humanity in terms of an organism as well. Not only is humanity or the human race a single organic entity, ultimately by way of the ethical bonds that we have in Christ or in Adam. Um, uh, the structure of the human society is also an organism, right? You have different spheres of life. This is their understanding of sphere sovereignty. You have, you know, uh, social life, you have political life, you have family life, you have um, all of these different layers of, of spheres, but at the same time, they're all connected together by way of a single concept, the kingdom of God. Um, the kingdom of God is a, a, a unity of diverse social realities, we might say. Um, whether that be the, in the family or in, in the different nations that we have, the different schools that we have, you know, school doesn't function in the same way as uh, um, the family does, for example. But at the same time, we're all connected together as these different spheres are functioning in their own way, in their own norms, in their own capacities. They're all still connected together in a diverse way, in a united way to glorify God. So in that same way, when we come to Bobbing's understanding of the university or the school, he argues that science too, or the scholarly endeavor, the scholarly and critical pursuits of particular disciplines, notice that there are 
a diversity of disciplines. There is uh, anthropology, there's philosophy, there is empirical sciences, history, religious, and, um, um, jurisprudence or law and, and, and literature and theology. These are all a diversity of fields, right? And each field has their own norms, principia, methods, and, and objects of study um, that, that um, maybe on a day-to-day -day level don't really overlap. But ultimately, Bobbing says, if we are Christians and we believe in the organic motif, um, there is a greater unity underlying the diversity of the sciences. Um, and he therefore says, along with Kuiper, you know, there's an organism of science that there's a unity that unifies the diversity of the scientific fields. And that's what we're trying to achieve in a Christian university. And theology functions therefore as the catalyst for unity. Um, uh, as, as you know, there's a great article by James Eglinton and Mike, Michael Brautiga on the, the place of theology within the university. And in that particular article, they argue that without theology, the, the sciences will just become a cacophony of different fields that don't really have to be with, you know, with, with one another at all. It's, it's a kind of atomistic knowledge rather than an organic knowledge. Yeah. It's an atomistic view of science rather than an organic view of science. And so this is one of the ways we see Bavink being both indebted to scholasticism and also the, the modern uh, emphasis on the, the unity of knowledge and the encyclopedia of knowledge, right? On the scholastic side, we see Bobbing really emphasizing the diversity of the sciences, that the norms, methods, principia, and goals, and objects of studies are all different according to the, each different science. But at the same time, he wants to say, well, because of the encyclopedic needs of knowledge and also the organic uh, uh, nature of knowledge, we have to see these different sciences as being quite porous. Um, Bobbing says very provocatively, it is, it is in multiple works, uh, uh, not only in, 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 in Chris like Wetenschap or Christian scholarship, Christian science, but also in his, his, his uh, address at the Free University of Amsterdam, I think it was uh, 1908, 1909, on religion and theology, he simply says that science is one. It's one mm. entity. And Christianity has paved the way for the unity of science. And, you know, he's, he's drawing a lot on, on the endeavor on, of course, just the unity of knowledge in the university. This is going on in the 1920th century. Um, human knowledge, human consciousness is, is so rich and so variegated that, that when we are doing scholarship, we're not just studying individuals, we're studying the organic unity of all of humanity's scholarly endeavors. That's what he's trying to get at. So you see that orthodox and modern flavor there too. Um, um, there's, there's also another way in his cosmology where the organic motif comes out in terms of self-consciousness, but maybe we can talk about it later, but that's, that's a broad idea of what, what we're trying to get at there. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think, I mean, the very word university, right, is sort of one, one knowledge, uh, or one truth, yeah, a unity and truth. Um, yes. uh, and disciplines now are so, uh, it seems like, this, you know, one, of the, one critique of the university these days is that the disciplines don't talk to one another, uh, and it's, it's such an interesting model, such an interesting yeah. imagination. And in a, another area where he where he works this way, of course, is you know we we're talking about um, uh, the, the motif of organism relative to epistemology, relative to the universities and sciences. Um, and we've talked about him relative to other religions, but he Bobink is also reflects interestingly on the church itself. Uh, how does this organic motif 
wind up working out in a theory of, you know, things like denominations and the future of Christianity. And all I can say here is I just recall seeing this kind of wonderful moment in Bobbing, and it's just so characteristic of him that he observes American Christianity, and he, I think he even uses the word like, it has its own genius. It has its own, you know, he doesn't feel any need for the Dutch church to be American Christianity, and he mm -hmm. has concerns about American Christianity, but he also recognizes that it has its kind of own project that's useful in its own way. And he seems to speak about various branches of the church in this way. So, I, But I assume you guys know more about this than I do. So I'm curious about your thoughts on sort of Bavink, the intra-denominational sort of, sort of thinker. Well, yeah. let me say something brief. And I know Gray's uh, thought about this more recently than I have. But um, it's just worth pointing out that when he was in Canada in Toronto, oh. the Fifth General Council of Churches or something, of that sort, uh, some conference, um, he, he said, uh, sorry, I think it was after, after, after that, after he'd been in, in North America, he had come back to the Netherlands and he said to a, to a, his small town audience in camp and the, the theological school of his denomination, um, that what he learned along the way was Calvinism is not the only truth. Um, and that was a shocking, uh, statement for his audience to hear i think um yes but uh, i just wanted to mention that gray i'll, I'll let you yeah it, it's 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 such a great question because i'm not sure that we can have a a clear resolution within bob and some corpus i could be wrong about that but he definitely talks about how in reform christianity you have these diversity of confessional statements for example he says that you know um calvin's genevan uh, confession and catechisms, you know, there's very different than what you might get in the Westminster standards. It might have substantially a lot of overlap, but you can't compare Geneva and, you know, the Westminster standards, he argues. And when you get to, you know, um, the three forms of unity, there's going to be different emphases there. And you get to the, to the also, in other words, Calvinism has always born within it a kind of appreciation for national diversity. At the very root of the Reformation, you see these diversity of nations incorporating the Reformation in their own way. And so I think he, he, he applies that to um, how we should understand the globalization of Calvinism today, you know, how that American Christianity and, and American Calvinism is very different than Dutch Calvinism. Is that a bad thing? Should, should, we, should we learn about that? And you, you're right, Joe. And he says a lot of things about how we shouldn't expect everybody to become Dutch Calvinists. Um, American Christianity has their own future. And that's okay. Um, the kingdom of God is too rich and too variegated to be contained and to be limited by one sphere of Calvinism in the Netherlands. And, you know, that's, that's very different, I would say, with, let's say, you know, Warfield's um, emphasis on Calvinism being the most mature form of Christianity. Calvinism as Christianity comes to its own. You know, maybe they're using the word Calvinism in a different way there, perhaps. But definitely you see the different emphases there of, of Calvinism being the pinnacle of everything versus, hey, these denominations have something to contribute. doesn't mean that we, we can't criticize the differences or something like that, but at the end of the day, on this side of, the, of, of redemptive history, we're not going to get the fuller picture until we see it all come together in the last day, perhaps. Yeah, there's a passage, in fact, I think in Prolegomena where he, where he says uh, the church, and I'm, I'm going to butcher this a bit, I, I 
think it's on page 481, but I could be misremembering the page number, but it's sort of like the church does not yet now exist. What exists is a plurality of churches. And he mm -hmm. sort of is talking about, he, the picture he paints is sort of like, they're all moving toward the church. Uh, and the yeah. best way for them to do that is actually to, uh, 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 I, I'm, I'm going to perhaps miscommunicate this a little bit, but I think what he's trying to communicate is, is, is actually to be most themselves. It's actually yeah. not, you know, the Methodist trying to become the Calvinist. Be the, figure out the, the genius of Methodism, you know, what's true about it and, and stick with it. Uh, and yeah. same with the Reformed and such. And he sees that as actually sort of the path toward uh, sort of the final church with the big C, you know, <laughs> something like yeah. that. Yeah, you see that in his, you know, uh, article, The Future of Calvinism, where he talks about the, the bright future, the free churches or something like that, where the church is just kind of, self-organized by way of voluntary association and voluntary gatherings and it should emerge from that bottom up and and you know somebody needs to relate that to kuiper's emphasis on on the free churches too because kuiper is very much against a national church that imposes a confession from the top down um, we should let the people decide for themselves and organize for themselves and therefore agree to this confession according to their own free personalities that's something that kuiper emphasizes and, and within that particular context, Kuiper also, I think, valorizes American Christianity, interestingly enough. They're going to be critical of American Christianity in some ways. Um, Bobbing says that American Christianity is, is too fixated on celebrity and flowery language, for example. But, but Kuiper says, you know, in American Christianity, you see this grassroots, bottom-up religion uh, rather than, you know, a national Dutch church or a national German church saying, here's what every church has to believe from now on. If you want to adopt a confession, that's good. You need a confession, but let the people agree to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's it's, it's a very, you know, it's, 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 it's Kuiper being a, uh, for the, the, the Kleine Leiden, the, the, the small people, you know, the, the grassroots, he's, he's, a, he's a politician for the people rather than, you know, so that's a very interesting thing that in both of them that you see. Yeah. And Bobbing, Bobbing speaks today, as uh, we sometimes say, especially when it comes to his criticisms of American Christ Christianity. <laughs> oh, that's right. Um, the, the, this is so relevant for, you know, another way we might look at Bobbing. Um, would it be fair to say, uh, you know, and I see this in Lewis as well, though a generation later in a kind of a different writing audience, but a, would it be fair to say that Bob Inc. always writes with an eye to kind of civilization, to civilized man as such? That is, he's not just writing with an eye to other Christians or to other religions, but with an eye to modern man in possession, maybe you could put it this way, in possession of the world's archive of knowledge and trying to make his way in that knowledge. Uh, maybe one way of looking at that would be to ask if Bob Inc. thinks there's a, a potential international political significance to the Christian faith. And I wouldn't take it that this would mean that any church or nation would serve another church or nation in kind of modern sort of one world government for the people who are worried about that. But rather that, you know, in as much as he wants to argue that Christ is a kind of universal ideal and that the law of Christ fulfills and glorifies the law of man, does Bobbing think of the Christian faith as having kind of potential uniting effects in human civilization? Can we read Bobbing then as, a, as an early theologian <laughs> grappling with national and confessional relativization, but who sees the Christian faith as something that transcends, accommodates, and has the potential to unite these. 
um, uh, uh, this question gets long, but I'll, I'll just, it's almost over, don't worry. Uh, that is, maybe an African church need not be a Dutch one, but both may be faithfully Christian in some ways, precisely by being themselves without, you, you know, while fighting against their own sins. Similarly, Holland as a, as a, as a nation need not be America, but both can have a common lord, a king, who fulfills and perfects what is most particular in them, without making their particularity a universality. So what, what are you, you know, thoughts here about sort of, you know, what Bob Inc. is doing with, you know, the Christian religion relative to civilization as such, kind of the human race as such, if you will. I could mention just a couple of things um, that are contextual, maybe more than directly answering the question. But one is that uh, it's fairly common for, biographers and uh, commentators, readers to say that in the early 20th century, when Bavink transitions from Kampen to, to Amsterdam, that um, there's a turn in that moment to what James Bratt has called his uh, fellow, um, fellow cognoscenti, as he puts it, um, his uh, the learned and um, the elite that he was in the latter portion of his life trying to, to speak towards uh, peer professionals more and more across all the different academic fields. Um, and so that, that became one of his significant audiences in the latter half of his life in a way. And that, that gets a, a little bit of more of the first part of, of the question that you asked. But um, let me just mention as well, and this is again contextual, that one of the ways Bobbing understood the unity of of the world of nation of of uh, peoples is uh, through his own philosophy of history. You know, he has a fairly unique um, philosophy of history, a theology of history. Those two terms are a little bit inter interchangeable here, but um, he says things that are as extreme as that without Jesus Christ. Uh, there is no unity to history. Um, without Jesus Christ, there is no unity to uh, the story and the narratives and the movement across time of, of peoples and nations. And, um, uh, and, and so in, in that he said, he actually, this is a quote, he says, Christianity determines history. Mm. Uh, and, um, and one of the things he means by that is that um, you know, history is not, of course, a mere study of things that happened. It's um, history requires valuation, uh, standards of valuation. I mean, history depends upon ethics um, because history tells narratives in order to make points. And those points depend upon valuations and, and judgments. And um, he says that without Christianity and particularly without revelation, then there is no history and his, that history is the unity of all peoples, nations. Jesus Christ, for him, the incarnate word becomes uh, the unity that you were describing earlier in some sense in, in that way, that rather abstract way, I suppose. But yeah, fairly indirect, but yes, Gray. That's, that's a great uh, reminder of those texts, Corey. Yeah, and, you know, the relationship between Christianity as being a contributor to civilized man, as, as Christianity is a contributor to the understanding of history. You know, one of the things that we see in, in Christian worldview, for example, is precisely that kind of argument. 
and Christian worldview was written um, because Bobbing felt the decline of Christianity was uh, coming and that they're already feeling the ramifications and the consequences of that decline. And one of the interesting consequences uh, of, of the decline of Christianity is the rise of triumphalist nationalism, especially then you get in, in, in the German philosophers and the German historians of that day. You know, this is something that I try to bring up in my lecture for our TSVC. Uh, Bavink was saying that if you take away Christianity, then you're taking away your access to revelation and revelation reveals to you what is good and true and beautiful. And, and revelation is the means by which you adjudicate yourself, right? So if you take away revelation, then all you have is not a transcendent norm to evaluate the good. All you have is yourself, but not only yourself, normally what happens is you would use yourself and your community as the means by which you adjudicate other people groups. And he says that this is exactly what's happening in German uh, philosophy and German historians. Uh, they were saying that, well, take away Christianity. It's ourselves who are the most cultured people group. We are the pinnacle of progress. We are at the, at the spearhead of history. We are the one uh, that, that, that should therefore be the judge that, that, that all the other people groups are trying to get at, but are not yet there. And so, you know, he was citing philosophers that were saying things like the German spirit will heal the world um, because everyone else is kind of primitive, um, especially talking about uh, um, nations in Southeast Asia and, and uh, uh, China and things like that. And everyone else is still trying to approximate the German culture. And Bobbing basically says, look, if you take away Christianity, this is the product for civilization. You will not end up with greater unity. You will end up with greater nationalism. Uh, um, and that's what Christianity uh, prevents us from doing because Christianity says that each nation contributes to an understanding of civilization and of humanity as such. And when you have God as the source of goodness, God's word as telling you what is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God in the church is a diversity of nations, for example, then you'll be able, you're, you're, you're going to be better able to appreciate the scholarship of other nations, the, the scholarship of all the peoples, but also the unity of all the nations rather than a valorization of one particular nation. So I think, I think he does have civilized man as such. Um, Christianity as a help for society rather than just a, 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 a help for your own personal piety, we could say. Yeah. Well, let me add to that, Gray, because one of the things very briefly that that just made me think of was uh, what Kuiper calls uh, the mother idea of neo-Calvinism. And uh, mm. that's the term he uses. The mother idea of neo-Calvinism, and Bob Inc. agrees with this, is that uh, all of human life is lived in the presence of God at all times, that every single life is lived quorum Deo. And so there's a unity uh, of all peoples in all places at all times and all nations in that theological truth that right now all of us find their primary uh, identity and relationship in the fact that the mother idea, as he puts it, is that we are right now before the face of God, all of us. And um, in, in that basic theological reality, he finds um, the unity of humanity uh, yeah. and, and uses that to actually build a, a political philosophy, actually, Kuiper does, that, that yeah. idea of, of, you know, what we would call classical liberalism or something like that. So. 
That's what's so interesting is that, you know, it seems to me that there's got to be somebody that could write a political, you know, one of the reasons I, I wanted to ask these questions is because it seems to me like you could write a philosophy of religion out of Bob Inc. You could write a political philosophy out of Bob Inc. or political theology out of Bob Inc. Um, that I, I'm sure some people have worked on some of these things, but I'm sure there is, I'm sure there's plenty of resources to be juiced that haven't been juiced sufficiently. Uh, on a lot of these questions, you know, it's really fascinating. Uh, one thing we haven't discussed is Bob Inc. in the Christian life, you know, getting a little more practical as we go to the end here. We, we've talked about Bob Inc. in relation to all facets of modernity and such, but how does Bob Inc.'s sensitivity to the human, which we've talked about on various registers, show up in his treatment of pastoral care and ethics? I think that's a really interesting theme in Bob Inc. It's just, you know, it's shocking that somebody could be so theoretical uh, and on the one hand, and so theological, and yet he has, uh, it seems to me, just enormous, there's enormous resources in Bob Inc. To, ha to cultivate wise pastoral care. And so I wonder if you guys could you know, just tell me what you think along those lines. Yeah, um, that's a great question, Joe. Um, a couple of things, perhaps. I think one, uh, as, as Corey mentioned, his expansion of general revelation and his emphasis on self-consciousness or a knowledge of the hearts, we might say, uh, pastorally, an intuitive knowledge of God, um, helps us relativize a scholarly discussion. I mean, he's going to say that scholarly discussion is necessary, scholarly discussion is good, it's a scientific process where we cognize and systematize what we know intuitively, for example. But at the same time, he wants to say that uh, um, the common people who are not scholars, uh, this is his way of putting it, the common people, but, you know, um, they know things about God just as much as we theorizers do. You know, that's something that he wants to emphasize, that there isn't going to be a, one elite religion for the academics and another religion for the common folk. Rather, he wants to say that all the academics are doing is really grasping at, theorizing, systematizing what common people already know as well. So it's not like we have an, a, 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 a higher class of religion right, than the common person. And I think that's really important in a, in perhaps an elitist European context that he was speaking into. The second thing that comes out of his organic motif, uh, and this also comes out significantly in his ethics, for example, is to say that um, the mark of true religion or true piety, true Christian wisdom and piety is not in individualist introspection, precisely because humanity is a single organism the maturation of the human person is precisely in relationships. Uh, we're all connected together by way of ethical bonds. So how do we manifest our Christian identity? By being united in love, by, being, uh, uh, by fostering stronger corporate social relationships. And that's his focus. You know, he, he criticizes pietism and Methodism uh, because he says that they are narrowly focused on the inner life of the self in terms of just virtuous dispositions maybe, or a kind of activism and how intensely you feel at the moment about your, your piety and then your relationship with God. He says, hey, let's turn away from a fixation upon your, 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 your character in itself and let's turn that outward to a love for neighbor. So, that the mark of sin, he says, the root principle of sin is egocentricity, and the spiritual life is a, a, is a fellowship in the spirits by relational bonds of love. 
that's I think an organic motif put into pastoral practice. Mm. So I think that's really insightful. Yeah. Uh, since you, I think those are super helpful, Gray. I mean, maybe I was thinking about the question in terms of uh, how Bob Inc. has in some sense pastored me wow. as I've read him uh, as well um, in recent years. And, you know, his pastorate was very short lived. He, he was a pastor for two he was a, you know, he was a ordained minister his whole life, but he only pastored a church for two years. And uh, we only have a few of his sermons uh, in his whole lifetime, um, which is a, is a shame in some sense, as far as I know. Um, so we, we don't get to see through his own writings and as much of how he was preaching and, and different things like that. But um, one of the, the most, one of the more helpful things I've found in reading him is these moments in the Reformed dogmatics where he turns towards doxologies. And uh, he, he takes the reader, he takes you, you'll be in the middle of a long, a long passage about, uh, about Kantian epistemology and uh, you know, the, the latest scholarship on X, Y, Z, just deep into it. And then all of a sudden there's this, breakthrough you know you've broken through and you know you feel like luther um almost when he discovers justification if i could put it like that and um bobbing just starts you know docs just worshiping in the text itself and um, i always really enjoyed those moments and you know found myself reading reading him every day and in our studies and being pulled in and to, to worship during those moments in his text. It, I, I mentioned that because, you know, it's not often um, that modern systematic th- theology draws you in those directions. And um, the, the systematic theologies or dog, the dogmatics of his contemporaries, as far as I read them, don't have the same um, sense to me of doxology that Bob Inc.'s text does, even when you emerge from the depths of modern philosophy in it and um so that that has personally been something i've really enjoyed about him so yeah well guys uh this has been really wonderful uh i'm just so excited to (laughs) to to get these emphases in uh in this interview uh, you know and to to share excitement about bob inc with two two great scholars of bob inc so the the last question i want to ask is you know you guys have read a lot of bobbing. You've read a lot more bobbing than I have, uh, of course. But what do you think are the most important questions that we still need to ask about it? You know, what lines of inquiry might be fruitful? What's the next step in your judgment in bobbing studies? What do you, if I could put it this way, what's the book that needs to be, what, if you could pick the book that needs to be written that nobody's written, what would you, you know, what would it be? <laughs> mm. It's a difficult question. Um, you know, I don't know about the most important, uh, but here some of the things I, I, I'm thinking about, at least, I, I think there will always be, there will be a, a, a lot of space for um, the philosophy of Revelation as a base text uh, to offer so many possibilities of, of inquiry. Um, Bavink's philosophy of history, nature, religion, mm-hmm. sciences, and arts. All of, all of that has an immense amount of potential. I think in some sense, Gray's work has laid a groundwork for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that specific study of, of those things um, 
is is going to happen and is coming and the implications of all those reflections on 21st century christianity uh for, for uh how how these can can be for us um more more exploration on the theology philosophy relationship and bobbing in general i think is needed um gray and i are, are at least as as we work on our uh, book that's that's due in, in december um I'm thinking about work that needs to be done on Bob Inc. and eschatology right now. Um, there's been uh, a, a lot of um, uh, publication, recent publication um, that is, is pretty critical of Bob Inc. on eschatology and um, uh, particularly on Bob Inc. and how much he eminentized the eschaton uh, to what degree and how that relates to um, the classical hope of the beatific vision and things like that. And uh, I, I think that needs to be addressed. I think we need to come back to that and reconsider some of the claims that have been made. Um, so those are some of the important, th that's the most important area of publication I'm thinking about at the moment, but that's because I'm writing on it probably. So uh, um, yeah. yeah, I think the other thing I would say is ongoing translation work is going to be important as well. So mm. yeah. And that's brilliant, Corey, and that I completely agree. I um, I think just from a historical perspective, I'd love to see how bobbing is being received uh, um, in the Dutch context in the later 20th century and towards the 21st, I guess, you know, I mean, again, I think in, in, in America, you see some of the ways in which he was received, but also just how was he received and how was his influence received in Holland itself, you know, because the Free University of Amsterdam continued after Bobbing and Kuiper. It continued in a very different direction. How did Bobbing contribute to that direction? And you know, um, how did Bobbing's influence uh, um, come to pass in, in some place like Kampen after Bobbing, you know, left to Amsterdam and and after Bobbing's years? And also, I think you know, this is just a hat tip to another Davenant, another person connected to Davenant, you know, Gail Dornbos. She's working on yeah. Bob's Doctrine of God, for example. And, you know, she had mentioned to me that, you know, more work needs to be done about how Bob's Doctrine of God had been received in the 20th, 21st century. There's there's some creative things that Bob is, is doing in that particular loci, that the particular locus, sorry, that, that is perhaps not been sufficiently appreciated. Um, so I think those things, just from a historical point of view, is very uh, interesting. Yeah, I would. Yeah, that's 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 really fascinating. And uh, uh, shout out to Gail Dornbos. Uh, she she right. uh, her work looks really fascinating on Bob Inc. I think she just finished her dissertation. What, when did she finish? Just this last year, I think. Yeah, uh, just recently. Uh, and looks looks just remarkable. Uh, uh, speaking for myself, one thing I'd love to see, I think, is w one thing you mentioned, Corey. I would just love to see somebody do uh, a dissertation on Bob Inc.'s philosophy of history. In my own dissertation, uh, in uh, the last uh, the last chapter before the conclusion, I drew a bit a, a bit on those quotes that you just mentioned about Christ as sort of, you know, that that history. Bobbing even writes something along the lines of like history just kind of falls apart, <laughs> like you can't you can't find a center to it if you take away Jesus. It just yeah. it becomes incoherent, and that's such an interesting. <clears throat> and I think there's even some. Uh, some deeply philosophical reflections in there that that are that could be teased out that uh you know I don't I don't I haven't seen a lot of work on but I'd love to see somebody work on 
Bobbing's philosophy of history, especially because that was such an interesting motif in 19th century, you know, sort of continental scholarship. Everybody's doing a philosophy of history at that point, and surely he's reading all of them. Uh, yeah. So how is he? How is he making that distinctively Christian? I would love to see somebody, you know, somebody do that work. Yeah. So let me give just a couple more shout outs. So I think I think there are yeah. a couple of people who are probably working on that. Uh, just really briefly. Um, so Bruce Pass has worked on the place of Christology involving dogmatics. Um, and I think he has some sections probably in there that, that tie exactly to what you said. But perhaps a bit more directly is Cam Flossing, who's working on, uh, I believe it is, uh, on the doctrines of God and history. Uh, um, with James, they're both James Edelton students. Uh, Bruce, I think his dissertation is coming out already with the publisher. They're uh, both finished. Cam, they're, uh, Cam is almost finished or finished? Okay, right, maybe right. he's finished, great, yeah. So they're both basically done and coming out, so uh, look forward to those. Oh, that's, <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's wonderful to hear. That's really great to hear. Maybe the, the last thing I'll mention too, uh, Joe, just to, to let maybe people know is that Gray and I have uh, started to work on a, another translation project as well. We don't have a, a publisher yet for that confirmed, but we're planning to, to do um, uh, one that Gray mentioned earlier, which is literally translated to the Christian science, but because of, uh, the the language of Christian, science, you know? um, we're, we're um, probably a different title, but we have we're in the early moments of, of that translation as well. So, no, hopefully it will come out before twenty twenty five or something. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's that's really wonderful to hear. Well, Gray and Corey, thank you so much for coming on Pilgrim Faith. This is uh, this has been wonderful. Uh, uh, this has been an advertisement to all of the listeners to please take up, uh, respond to the wooings of Herman Bovink. Uh, he has much wisdom to offer you, uh, but that's all from us today. Uh, until next time, from 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 uh, three guys to to you, we'll we'll see you next time. Thanks a ton.